This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. It's our first show back for 2019. My name is Sally Christie and I'm joined by Cerise Howard and Emma Westwood. And it is great to be back in the cave with you both. It's very snug and lovely. Seems like a long time. I'm very excited. Well, it has been a long time, yeah, it actually. Has. It has been, been quite a long time. Yeah, it has been a couple of months. Um, before we get started, we've got a huge show tonight. We're going to do our little summer recap. But I wanted to mention that two of our wonderful co-hosts, Lisa Kovacevic and Stuart Richards, sound- sadly won't be returning to the cave this year. No! So, I know. Lisa's continuing doing her wonderful work here at Triple R, and Stuart has landed his dream job but that happens to be in Adelaide. <laughs> so Radelaide. Now Radelaide. that Stuart's Now that there. Stewie's arrived, it's definitely transformed into Radelaide. Mm-hmm. So I would like to say a huge thank you to both Stewie and Lisa for their contributions to Plato's Cave last year. It was such an absolute pleasure to share the air with them and I will miss their insights and the disagreements. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I really sincerely wish them all the best. Oh, yeah, really. Really? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Really. I you do. do too, Cerise? Yeah, for the most part. Yeah, mostly. Yeah, yeah you do. And I, I feel like you miss them. I feel already. like they'll pop in to say hello every now and then. I mean, Lisa's in the studio a lot, and I think that Stewie, when he's in Melbourne, might guest, hopefully. Yeah, I think he's even coming back to Melbourne in two weeks' time. I can't leave Melbourne behind, let's just say. <laughs> Possibly not in here, but everyone look for him on the streets. We will. Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> On that note, we've got a brand new co-host in the cave. So the wonderful Paul Anthony Nelson, who has been a guest on Plato's Cave a number of times, and we are so excited to have you here on a more regular basis. So a huge welcome to Paul. Yay! Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, please. Uh, enough streamers. I can't see what, anything in the cave. It's meant to be projected on the thing. I don't know. How how the heck are you all? How It's summer, hey? It's summer, but we've spent it in a cinema. We've spent it in dark <laughs> cinemas. It could be winter. <laughs> Trying to cram it as much as we can. If um, you're a frequent listener to Plato's Cave, you'll know that our first show back for the year is in our usual format. It is a mad dash to briefly talk about all the films that we have watched over the summer break that are still screening at cinemas. So everything that we talk about tonight you can still catch in cinemas um before we get into it cerise you wanted to mention a few of the great sort of past yeah over. yeah i wanted to yeah. bring the tone down straight yeah, away, straight away. We've just had <laughs> move on from right the celebratory that. feel and just lament um <laughs> the passing of a lot of people who frankly were past their prime anyway that's not fair shame <laughs> on all of you <laughs> look they were quite old they'd done wonders though in their time in their heydays and in fact the likes of michelle legron his heyday was he was still in it it was a very very long heyday <laughs> he, he ne- never slowed down the great composer um i think is well the piece of music that i'm most enamored of of his is his theme to the umbrellas of Sherberg, which if i so much as can raise that melody into my consciousness i will cry none of us want that please in our don't first show <laughs> It's, keep your powder dry, Cerise. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, and, uh, look, Albert Finney in the last week or so, one of the greatest of all British actors, an angry young man whose range far exceeded that. Um, and uh, two, two particular favourite Eastern Europeans of mine, both uh, elderly. One of them I met not so terribly long ago. Their, their halcyon days were long back, uh, but... 
Hats off to Václav Volicek, whose films I got to show a couple of at uh, the Czechoslovak Film Festival in recent years. Who Wants to Kill Jesse is a truly singular piece of comics and uh, cinema fusion. And the gorgeous and proto-feminist Three Chestnuts for Cinderella. You've not seen Cinderella until you've seen Volicek's Czechoslovak East German co-production Cinderella. Stunning. Uh, and, and the great Dushan Makovayev, um, who was extremely saddened, passed away. WR, Mysteries of the Organism, sweet movie, essential viewing for all peculiar people. Get, <laughs> get on those films. Uh, sexual liberation and revolutionary spirit collide uh, and uh, mashed up in ways that are timeless and kind of of that time too, very 70s, but also no one's ever made films like him since um, You've got to get on those films, people. Wow, thanks, thanks for bringing the tone down, Cerise, and oh, also look, educating us at the same time. You did it. Worked. We're celebrating yeah. life. We Beautiful were. filmmaking <laughs> careers. The films live on. While you've all been out having a lovely summer and getting tans, people have been dying. <laughs> okay, at cinema, it's a haunted medium. <laughs> we are ghouls, all of us in the cave, <laughs> ghouls. Um, before we get into looking at some of our favourite films over the summer, I just want to say a huge thanks to Phoebe Squared for the last three hours and maps and a massive thank you to Hayley Inch and her fantastically named program Islands in the Screen for filling in the Plato's <laughs> Cave time slot over the summer. So we've got a lot to get through tonight uh, so let's get into it firstly with a film that I think we all saw god end of last year which is um, Yorgos Lathimos's The Favourite Emma. What did you think? I did love The Favourite. I'll put that right out there. It's uh, I, I was actually sitting in a cafe recently. I'm sure a lot of people who are listening tonight will probably have seen The Favourite by now, I'm guessing. And I was listening to these ladies chatting about The Favourite and um, they were saying, well, they were talking about movies in general and they were talking about a film that we will talk about tonight, The um, Green Book, and saying how wonderful and lovely it was. And then, oh, that favourite, that's a terrible film. That was just, <laughs> that was horrible. And um, it confirmed what I what I thought would happen with the favourite, which was it's it presents as a a story of or it's all it's you know promotional stuff. It's hard to present it in any other way. That it's a period tale around the monarchy, blah blah blah, blah you know, ye oldie stuff. And so you're going to get people who went and saw, you know, the king's speech. Danish girl and um, all that sort of thing, let's just say, to go and see this film. And it is not for that audience at, at all. We talked about Boy Erased. Interestingly, we had a really great conversation about that last year, which um, I think would have had a lot of queer viewers and that film was not for a queer audience. This film is not for a conservative Monarchist, let's say. It's funny, I was, I was talking with a friend today about this exact thing that she said. Her and a friend were watching The Favourite and they were the youngest people in the audience. It was full of an audience that had clearly gone to see and the they period piece out, and they, they walked out. They walked yep. out. Yeah, <laughs> exactly fantastic. that. The interesting thing is the people who Boy Erased was actually for are the people that have gone to the favourite by mistake. They should actually see Boy Arrays. That's not the film that's in line with, in keeping with their interests, I'd say. Sounds like it needs a special usher to just hang out. The, oh, you've, you've got, bought a ticket to the favourite. Yeah, just 
duck into boyerized for a moment. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but um, yeah, look, you know, sumptuous, wonderful film. I'm just really pleased to see that Yorgos Lanthimos from um, Dogtooth, which was such a, a spe- spectacular um, breakthrough film. It wasn't his debut, but it was just, uh, you know, an incredible film, um, so original, so exciting. And then I thought he was going to become a little bit derivative of himself, yet he's managed to create his own style yet uh, keep on perpetuating it and doing something different especially in bringing this into the English language and um, into uh, the mainstream as well. He is a director that I am most excited about when I see that he has a new film coming out. I consistently adore anything that he puts out and the favourite was absolutely no exception. I think we saw this was a Boxing Day release so it was just after we had done our best films of 2018 and if I got to redo that list again the favourite would definitely be on there. I think I would too yeah. Yeah. It's a wonderfully subversive film. It's beautiful. Plays out as if it's in a snow dome. The whole thing is so fish-eyed throughout. <laughs> Reminds me of a, a Czech film, but you know, Hertz I love a lot, Morgiana. Great mm. wigs in that as well, great mm-hmm. frocks. Mm. And great sense of mischief and a certain gothic sensibility and glee in uh, just probing certain taboos and, and bringing them to the fore. I mean, that's a, what I, I find fascinating about The Favourite is that apparently a lot of this is not... Uh, that far removed from truth. Mm. I was really surprised at that. I I had no idea that this was even semi-based on actual... I I only found out Mm. afterwards. And apparently an Australian screenwriter, I think Tony McNamara, was uh, central to teasing out a lot of that. Mm. Um, But I I do see Lanthimos' sensibility, that same sensibility that made The Lobster an incredibly poor choice of date movie (laughs) 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 is... Uh, rampant in this film and that that flair for anachronism enlivens things in in this film so much too he's really let's rip with some um, period inappropriate shenanigans and some extremely fruity language which actually may have been period appropriate do you think that fruity language existed at this i do think so it was in chaucer well okay um, I, but, I, I found um, it the satanic spawn of Peter Greenaway and Armando, Armando Iannucci. <laughs> it's <laughs> very much yes. like, you know, it's it's in the loop in old-timey. Like, and also that, that fact you've got this kind of indulged, pure-eared character in Queen Anne played brilliantly by Olivia Coleman, who mm. is the best and has been the best for quite some time and now people are finally realising. Um, and she's this kind of indulged pure person who is surrounded by Rachel Weiss, whose performance, oh, my God, her swagger in this puts Bond villains to shame. She's so good. <laughs> yeah. so good. And, and Emma Stone, who is also fantastic. Um, who Like, Emma Stone is so alternately sweet and monstrous. You start losing, like... Who like who is this character really? Like mm. is 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 she someone sweet that became monstrous or always monstrous and was just waiting for the outlet? Yeah, it's interesting that massive shift with her that there is complete at the end it's almost that she's unrecognizable as a character that we saw at the start of yeah. the movie. Yeah. But yet may have been that all mm. along. Um and you know, it it felt like this sort of, you know, the 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 kind of craven inhumanity and manipulation that mutates in cross close proximity to power and the petulant whims and pathetic isolation of the indulged, manipulated person at the top of the structure. It's very kind of pertinent to, you know, times we find ourselves in today. Wow. Well, that was a mouthful. (laughs) 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 But yes, Paul. We agree. Yes, you were right. Yes, quite. (laughs) This is what I'm bringing to this show, people. Yeah, we like it. (laughs) Five dollar words. (laughs) 
and the favourite is currently showing on wide release. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. The next film that we are going to be covering is Vice, which was also a Boxing Day release, um, directed by Adam McKay. I was hoping for Step Brothers too, but we got Vice instead. <laughs> <laughs> which I think we all managed to catch at the cinema as well, which is, of course, the um, story of Dick Cheney. So, Paul, you saw Vice? Yeah, I did indeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, this is... So this is the, uh, of course, Adam McKay, uh, who is famous for uh, films like Step Brothers and Anchorman and that sort of Will Ferrell brand of comedy, um, Ricky Bobby, Talladega Nights, uh, had a shift in his career with his last film, which was The Big Short, which was all about the global financial crisis and how certain uh, people sort of played and benefited from that and how the American economy is run like a casino and... Um, and that was really great and really kind of established him as, you know, a, a, a new voice, uh, someone who's kind of the, the anger kind of vibrated off the screen with that movie. And I think he's going for the same thing here. It's like, oh, I found my niche now. This is what I do. This vice felt to me like, you know, that what De Palma's films to Hitchcock, this felt like vice felt like the same, but to Oliver Stone. It felt oh, like... Yeah. yeah, I can see I that. I got that too, <laughs> yeah. so much there trying was, to be an Oliver Stone There film. was a lot of natural-born killers in there. Hell yes, with the yeah. fish. Yep. Like, so <laughs> many... There's this whole fishing metaphor of whenever he's got someone on the hook and, you know, and he's talking to someone and then we see fish being caught and it's like, yeah, this is straight out of natural-born killers, <laughs> Nixon, U-turn era Oliver Stone. Um, but it's somehow Oliver Stone without the nuance and that's something I never <laughs> thought I'd hear myself say out loud. That's... Oh, <laughs> um, I, that's really interesting. Yeah, I look. I really enjoyed this. I, I mean, okay, let's dial that back. I enjoyed this. Uh, it's it's lively and well put together. I mean, the performances are great. Um, Bale disappears into Cheney, and the, uh, everyone does really great impressions. Amy Adams is terrific, kind of riffing on her character from The Master. But it's it felt like other than the stuff like I didn't know he worked for Nixon and Ford or that he that Cheney worked for Rumsfeld originally I didn't know about the unitary executive theory which Cheney mm. used to kind of control you know basically be president without being president but other than that I didn't feel like I learned anything about Cheney I didn't know when I walked in the cinema and the uh, not only the events but also the motivation and I feel like I I don't need films to teach me a lesson but I I want some I want you to mine it. I want you to find the motivation. And power and greed aren't motivations. They're symptoms. And I just couldn't access what drove these people. So in the end, it's like, yeah, Cheney's a villain. Yeah, we all know that. Like, what? Dig deeper. And, and you know, all the editing flash. And there's some great gags in there. There's a, there's a fake ending, which is fantastic, mm. and a few other little things. But, yeah, overall, I was, I was a little, left a little cold about this one. How did you guys go? That I think that they actually wore that whole idea of it, I, I get what you mean about that that not digging where's the motivation, but it was interesting the way that it was set up and the way this there's kind of this new breed of biopic that says kind of wears its truth a little bit more in some ways, even showing its shortcomings right off the bat because it said something about we've basically tried to do our best. I'm not using the language yes. <laughs> that they use. <laughs> but um, And Cheney was an incredibly secretive leader. So it was like they couldn't get to that. And I so I understand what you mean there, Paul, but 
I was really impressed with what they then did not having that, which mm. I enjoyed the the play on media. I enjoyed that, which was sort of in the middle mark, I think, where it almost had a, a fake political election advertisement that was sort of saying, and this story could go this way, but then it goes another way. And that they managed to make something incredibly entertaining out of someone who, while he's lived a very interesting political life, is really pretty boring. You know, he's not a very interesting person. And also their transformations as characters. I mean, there's a lot in this film. There's a lot of... It's a lot of cutting. It's a very, very fast-moving mm. film. But I was quite intrigued, even though, you know, there was a, a makeup work with Christian Bale to be Cheney. Um, I was... I think he really sold it, and I noticed that they really sold their characters with their mouths. Like, Sam Rockwell didn't have that much makeup on. I noticed the exact same yeah. thing. It was their mouths that were doing... The the way all, they all held their mouths. Really yeah. Mm. So this was, I found it incredibly funny as well. So I was just engaged from start to finish, um, despite the fact that we, I think that it was kind of showing Jane, Cheney's just an empty person, really. Yeah, he's he a has no soul. Transcendentally boring psychopath. Yeah, mm. exactly. And uh, this film is sobering, and uh, just how much it reminds you that I think we generally knew that he was this master manipulator and led the world to where we are today, where we have a much more colourful psychopath running the United mm. States instead, someone who's so much more obviously psychopathic. But Cheney, yeah, there's not a lot there on the surface. You, you, get, you get a sense that there's hidden depths, but even they are boring. There's that scene where he takes an eternity to mull over a major decision and, and it's so boring, and yet it's kind of engrossing in its boringness because it's it's very unsubtly making the point that uh, yeah, you know, not all psychopaths are flamboyant, and um, the consequences of elevating people like this to high station, even when they're behind the scenes, the consequences are gargantuan. Uh, that little moment of Shakespearean... Um, I love yeah. that. Yeah. Those little devices that he's used in this film, much like he did in The Big Short as well, certain Brechtian, you know, total fourth wall breaches, lots of fun. But actually I still felt slightly underwhelmed by this film too, ultimately I have to say. Um, but hats off to all the performers who really embodied... I mean, Steve Carell, I would never have imagined would make a good Donald Rumsfeld, and yet I bought into it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I thought this was really great. I went to this not knowing a whole lot about Dick Cheney, apart from his heart problems from Eminem songs. Was, <laughs> <laughs> Always the best source yeah, of news. I know, exactly. I was like, I knew that he had a heart problem from Eminem songs. Um, but, yeah, I thought all the performances in this were amazing. It's interesting about how fast-paced this film was because, as we've all mentioned, that Cheney, even though he is a master manipulator, he was quite boring. So it was, yeah, a very interesting device to keep the movie going because if they didn't have that, if it had have been made up, like, made like a straight-up biopic, it would have been very boring. And know? the narration. What an interesting choice yes. of narrator. And uh, if anyone hasn't seen it, I won't, won't say who that person is, but um, I thought that it was a really good plot device. See, I mm. think that didn't quite pay off. I really? Was, yeah. I thought it was kind of like, oh, that, oh is that all there is? <laughs> Yeah. It was M.A.M. I can't know. <laughs> yeah, it was M&M. If only. If only. That would be fantastic. Maybe there's an eight-mile mashup waiting to happen <laughs> with this film. Well, um, Vice is still screening uh, on wide release, so you can go and see that if you feel so inclined. 
You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, next up is another Boxing Day release that we, we have spoken a little bit about on our program before when it was screened at MIF, and I also think it made Stewie and Cerise's top ten films of last year, which is um, Cold War. Yeah. So, Cerise, do you want to take it away? Oh, look, I'll do what I can. Uh, Pavel Pavlikovsky, uh, the Polish director of the moment. I just really wanted you to say his name because I couldn't pronounce it, so that's why I wanted you to start. <laughs> All right, well, my work here is done. <laughs> you can go now. Back to you, Sal. <laughs> uh, this is a stunning film. Uh, look, um, so way back in... Uh, obviously the title of the film alludes to a certain socio-political reality for people on either side of the so-called Iron Curtain uh, post-World War II uh, but there's a, this is a great love story in as much as it's a great frustrated love story because these two people fall madly in love but then keep having these big blow-ups that positions them on either side of the Cold War divide uh, it begins with uh, uh, what's the musicologist coming to um, sort of rural parts of Poland looking for folk tunes to document, and uh, one such musicologist falls for uh, a quite uh, forthright young woman who presents herself as someone who really should be brought into this travelling troupe where this folkloric music will be celebrated all around the salons of groovy Paris and uh, other fabulous places otherwise inaccessible to people in the East. And uh, just uh, this, this film for me is, is so rich. It's rich in terms of locations. Uh, it's, the cinematography is exquisite, whether it's the extremely sad faces of people in the East who are basically subsisting on spuds if they're lucky and um, you know, heavily rationed life, um, whether it's there or in Yugoslavia. But then this whole vibrant life in Paris and elsewhere too, and there's, there's lots of this dichotomy explored. That's sort of familiar. We all know that West-East thing, loosely, at least from the cinema. But this film it shows the lengths that people who are fixated upon one another will go to to be together, even if that will only, in fact, ensure that for periods they will be apart. Um, I didn't actually find this necessarily tugged at my heartstrings, but I was just I just found the film a ravishing experience, musically, visually, and performatively. Everyone on this film in this film I just wanted to watch. I could couldn't take my eyes off the screen for a moment. How about you mm. folk? It's a cool jazz album of a film, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, I mean, that, there's a whole world of Eastern European jazz that was always amazing. And you look at some of those 60s Polish film scores, and there's some great composers there. Um, uh, the name of one in particular, Komida, Christoph Komida. Um, uh, Who composed for Roman Polanski. Yes, hey. a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there are a lot of people doing amazing work there. So, um, yeah, this jazz world, but also this world of folkloric music too, which doesn't travel anywhere near as well. It's not as universal. Um, it's but quite, you say it's not as universal, and I would usually... I'm not... Oh, it's a really weird thing to say. I wouldn't say I'm into folk music, but, you know, I, I can't actually say that because folk music is what, what, so broad, yes. you know. Yet, um, but listening to this, I was absolutely captivated by the music itself and especially the voice work, the the the, the timbre, the nuance in the voices. They, they seem to be 
such a unique style of singing without being completely foreign, if you know what I mean. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. Yeah. I think you have an old soul, Emma. (laughs) (laughs) Old Eastern European soul. Well, yeah, it just, that is the, same as you, Cerise, I found that this film, you know, it's so captivating on so many levels. The love story, people talk about the love story a lot, but um, that didn't, grabbed me as much the characters still i loved i i mean they they were great to watch on camera they had great black and white faces Mm. they looked great in black and white film and as paul was saying um that jazz feel there was also the way that everything was framed they the cinematographer kept a lot of air above their heads so they were sort of often smaller in the bottom of the scene and uh, in the frame and you get uh, like that smoke sort of wisping mm. up and you know it's it, really spectacular yeah it's so luscious to look at and listen to and the two performers uh, as well uh thomas cott and uh joanna kulig are fantastic um it's it's something like because usually you know i tread lightly with romantic dramas sometimes you know it can be a bit oh yeah here we go um but this one is so snappy and spirited and really funny at times too like it's mm. it's quite um, witty mm. um, and it's 88 minutes long which is I know. A glory it's like, I see I this is like my dream length this is a thing yes. Sally you think and, and you know I think that there's this idea that people think <laughs> they're going to see an Eastern European film and it's going to take up their whole afternoon that's this is a very economical beautiful type film oh, I think it's a there are certain, certain stereotypes yeah. that um, let's yes. say a myth trailer of some years ago <laughs> pandered to in a very entertaining way it has to be said and that was the year of, of Bellatar's final film and no one did Eastern European cinema like Bellatar if you really wanted to play into those potato peeling interminable potato peeling cliches uh, bless them um Cold War is currently still screening on limited release. You are listening to Plato's Cave on 3 Triple R. 3 Triple Next up is Claire Denis' new film, Let the Sunshine In, which, Emma, I'm going to let you introduce this one because you're the only one of us that's seen it. I'm the only one that's seen it. What a shame. It is a shame. Everyone should be seeing this. Yeah. We wanted to speak about it tonight because I think it finishes its run at Acme tomorrow. Tomorrow night. Yeah, 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 exactly. So if anyone um, feels like, you know, encouraged to see it, please do. Uh, It's Juliette Binoche. Uh, well, it's Juliette Binoche. What else can we say? <laughs> That's a great selling point in itself. And uh, it's basically a story around uh, this uh, this woman who's uh, middle-aged, uh, divorced, looking for love. Um, she's an artist. In all the wrong places, Emma. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. It is a little bit like that. Uh, <laughs> this film came out actually at last year's French Film Festival and it seems to have taken a while to reach cinemas here in fact it's um it's coming it's come out very very close to the next french film festival that is going to have claire denis next film high life which is um science fiction claire denis going science fiction with juliette binoche so another julia Juliette Binoche um, appearance. And Robert Pattinson. Mm. And Robert Pattinson, yes. And And English English language. Mm. And English language. So um, 
But, you know, Juliette Binoche is just trying to take on, I think, uh, Isabelle Huppert's mantle as the the hardest working French actress <laughs> at the moment. She's, I think there's another two films she's going to be in at the French Film Festival, non-fiction being one of them, which is the Olivia Assayas film, his new film coming up. But this film... Uh, Essentially, it's really quite pretentious in its indulgence in emotion, middle class, bourgeois, let's say, um, artistic indulgence, um, emotional wallowing. Uh, and yet it is such a luscious, amazing script. The dialogue is so rich and so interesting that you're just held riveted to it even though you're thinking oh look at these people I mean really they've got all this time to faff on about how they're feeling and and she really has a train of very ordinary men that are involved in her life and her conversations with them are incredibly interesting as well but she's not the character that's it's not like poor um, the poor Juliet, or her Isabel, I think is the name of her character, uh, because in some ways she's perpetrating that uh, these bad relationships. Um, she's it's a lot of the dialogue is around um, her trying to min- manipulate them to be what she wants them to be. So it is it is just incredibly interesting, and it's a, a it's kind of a series of her. Um, uh, her liaisons and looking at these um, these different li- liaisons and how some come back and some don't and so forth and how she's finding it hard to move on. But then it ha- also has a, just a very interesting credit sequence, one of the most interesting I've seen, where um, it basically plays over the final scene of the, the film uh, where she is speaking to her psychiatrist who is right at the end, Gérard Depardieu. And, um, and it's, yeah, it's just a really dynamic end, another way that a film does not overstay its welcome, a nice little short, sharp film. And uh, I think people should try and get to Acme by yeah, tomorrow. Well, for my money, she's one of the greatest filmmakers on the planet, you know, so... Oh, she's incredible. Yeah. And, she's really is, incredible. and this is kind of uncharted territory for her because she doesn't normally... No. ...work in the kind of romantic milieu. No, and she doesn't usually work in sci-fi either. So no. she just keeps us on our toes the whole time. And I think actually High Life also has a a horror element to I've it. I've heard very, very, mm. very good things about High Life. I'm super excited. She has worked too. in horror, but, mm. you know, yes. yes. Yeah, but, I'm yeah. very excited for High Life. So Let the Sunshine In is screening until tomorrow night at Acme. So get along and see it. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. And now one that has a lot of Oscar buzz about it, um, The Green Book. or It's just Green Book, isn't Green it? Book, Green, yeah. Book. Green Book, yeah. Green Book. Green Book, which I haven't seen yet. So, um, Paul, what were your thoughts on Green Book? Green Book. Now, okay, so obviously this film's had a lot of mud slung at it. And some of which for good reason, but it's uh, it's been somehow nominated for a bunch of Oscars, which is very strange. Uh, it's pretty much, as I said, a kind of a a spin on Driving Miss Daisy, and it, it's sort of it's a very sweet movie. Like I'm, 
But what it struck me as the most... Now, I'll just give a quick recap. It's essentially uh, Viggo Mortensen plays Tony Lip, who is an uh, Italian-American bouncer, essentially, who um, is a family man. He's got, you know, wife and home and everything. And he's... he's uh, After an incident, he's working at the Copa. And after an incident, the Copa's closed down for a couple of months. He needs to find some money. He gets a job driving um, a gentleman named Dr. Shirley, who is... Uh, and an African-American uh, pianist uh, played by Mahershala Ali of Moonlight. And these are real these are real people. Yeah, this is based characters. on a true story. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so he gets a job driving, driving uh, Dr. Shirley through the South. And so it sort of transpires. At first, you know, he's... Tony's a little, you know, he's a little old-world Italian-American. He's quite, you know, racist against African-Americans. And as he takes him on this journey, which it, it slowly unfolds that... The journey is into through the through the deep south, and Doctor Shirley has willfully gone on this tour. Like he knows the persecution he'll face, he knows, but he's deliberately doing this for this reason. Um, and the Green Book of the title was something I was unaware of until I saw the film, which was a publication, kind of like a travel guide given to African Americans around the sort of forties, fifties, sixties. Uh, maybe later, um, basically telling them places where they could stay, where they'd be welcome. Um, so it's kind of all these, you know, all these sort of stops where, you know, a, a, an African-American person can um, can uh, live, you know, peacefully and not be persecuted. And, of course, over the course of the drive, the two of them start getting along. Tony becomes quite protective of Dr. Shirley and they end up becoming friends. No, I would never have expected that to happen. Right. <laughs> More than anything else. This film reminded me of you know those essays they used to write because one of okay I'll I'll say this up front the the one of the writers of the film it's directed by weirdly Peter Farrelly of the Farrelly <laughs> no. Brothers like uh, uh, something, something about, about Mary. Mary thank you um, shallow Hal yeah all the quality <laughs> cinema hall pass me uh, myself and Irene <laughs> hey that is really good yeah it's Hush not. Now. <laughs> The, one of the other writers is a guy named Nick Villalonga, who is the son of the Tony Lip character. You know those essays they used to make you write in primary school about your parents and what they did? This feels like that. It feels like my my dad's name is Tony. Tony is a good dad. Last summer, dad told us a story about driving Dr. Shirley across America and they became best friends. Like, it feels like that. It just feels yeah, it like does. a son's yeah. love letter to his dad. And, you know, between that and, like, Vigo seems to have studied Scorsese movies for his accent, but he's having fun and, and him and Mahershala seem to kind of genuinely enjoy each other's company and they've got real chemistry. And so I didn't have a bad time watching this, even though it felt incredibly broad, utterly obvious and not terribly insightful. But, you know, hey, it's a Hallmark <laughs> movie, right? Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I Basically, all I can say, Paul, is ditto. I felt exactly the same way about it. And it, and it ended and I was like, oh, that's it? <laughs> really? There wasn't a lot of dramatic thrust to this. I did enjoy seeing Vigo get to be a little bit more comical and have a bit more fun. Did he do a good job at it? He I did. Yeah. He did. did. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know... He's in full Goomba. Oh, you're breaking my balls. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You know, it's a, this is the film where, you know, when, you know, um, your, and I'll say in quote marks, mum says, shall we go and see The Favourite Dolls? You go, oh, no, let's go see Green Book. 
Yeah. Seriously. So and, they, and they love it. You know, it's, it's just fine. But it feels like someone said to me, oh, are you kidding me? With, in terms of the awards, of course it's going to get all the awards. It ticks all these boxes. But it feels like it ticks boxes from 1990. It's mm-hmm. just nothing that's very progressive, shall we say. Well, Green Book is still screening on wide release. Still. If you want to catch that one. And you're <laughs> listening to Plato's Cave on 3RRR. Three triple R. The next film that we'll be discussing is a Netflix documentary that dropped over the summer, which is Fire, the Greatest Party That Never Happened. <laughs> um, which I think I'm going to kick this one off. I, had, <laughs> I think you should, I'm Sally. Kick it to the curb. I had such a good time with it watching this, I was just squealing with laughter. So for those of you that aren't sure what the documentary is about, uh, in, it was 2017 that there was going to be this exclusive music festival in the Bahamas on an island that was previously owned by Pablo Escobar for rich millennials that um, saw an advertisement on um, Instagram, pretty much. So, and it all turned to shit. Spoilers. (laughs) Spoilers. I remember when this was all unfolding online and I was following it just with glee, looking at that dirty old sandwich that people were posting a picture of. So I was so excited when this documentary came out. Um, It was interesting, though that the day before this Netflix one came out, Hulu also released a documentary called Fire Fraud, mm-hmm. I think. And the big difference was that um, Billy McFarlane, that's his name, isn't it? Yep. The guy that organised Fire along with Ja Rule. That charming gent. Yes. <laughs> I think he was interviewed in the Hulu documentary. Ah. Um, but Rather yeah. than filming himself committing yeah. more fraud, exactly. as he is in this one. Exactly. Sure. But it's such an interesting thing. The whole So the Netflix documentary was produced by Fuck Jerry, which was um, a meme company, basically. It started That's off on right. Instagram. And they were the ones that were behind all the marketing of the Fire Festival. So all, um, yeah, that genius marketing where they got Kendall Jenner and a whole heap of other influencers. <laughs> <laughs> Bella Hibbib yeah. and all to, these, to tell know, people to come to this festival was all uh, Fuck Jerry's promotion. And they're the ones that have produced this documentary and, you know, got this all up and running. But it's kind of like... Where's your accountability? Yes, I you know. know. Like, you're There's also invested in this. This was also your doing. But here you are funding this documentary, you know, just paying someone else out, which, of course, the guy is a jerk. But it was such an enjoyable documentary to watch. I highly, highly recommend it. I found that interesting as well. Like, I didn't know that until uh, just before the show. Like, mm. the fuck Jerry co-produced it. And, you know, Ja Rule as well, like, Where's his account? He just kind of, it's also he interesting vanishes. in the doco. He vanishes midway through the yes. doco too. He's in like the first 30 minutes oh, he and ca- then he, he just comes, goes. He comes back when it all goes to shit and kind of tells them all to rally together. Yeah, and then runs to- away again. Yeah. It's like, what the- And I just kept looking at Billy McFarlane thinking he was Seth McFarlane for some yes, reason. Yes, he does look like Seth McFarlane because, right? yeah, he looks like him. Hmm. And it just kept the name and the look. Yes. I'm like, what is the creator of Family Guy doing rubbing all these millennials? Look... I, I must admit, I had a heavy dose of schadenfreude watching this too. But you know what? I'll be honest. By the time I saw them locked in a, literally locked and chained in an airport without food and water miles away and not knowing when they're getting home, I actually did feel, no, nah, actually, you know what? This is pretty 
messed up. Like, I'm actually starting to feel some empathy with these people now. Nah. This is <laughs> awful. It kind of plays interestingly on that whole dichotomy of social media, that aspirational uh, aspect of it where everyone's, uh, you know, wants to be what other people are and then that when you get to pull, see someone come crashing down, it's like, hurrah, you know. Oh, no. And it's terrible. <laughs> so I'm totally just... <laughs> delighted in doing that and it makes me feel awful. you're not as evil as billy mcfarland this no, is the thing he is Thanks, he Emma. actually shows himself to be a psychopath and i watched the ted bundy the confessionals of tapes of Tem- ted bundy at the same time and apart from the necrophilia and murder <laughs> i think they're kind of similar really minor details Emma. Just minor. but yeah it is it's so interesting that they sold this in uh, god I can only imagine what base sort of prices for tickets were. They talked a little bit about what ticket price was in this and it was just crazy. But essentially it was a music festival that had absolutely nothing to do with music. These people were going to have photographs taken so that they could hashtag them on Instagram and upload <laughs> exactly. them. Um, with so, supermodels. Yeah, with supermodels. And but even the way that it was... <laughs> it, Blink 182 <laughs> with a magnet getting people this thing. What the hell? <laughs> Even the way the, the documentary came together, though, it felt like um, Instagram stories just tacked one after the other. Mm. Um, it was so... Its pacing was really odd. It was just sort of um, systematically sort of almost like it didn't have sort of any ebbs and flows or anything like that. So that actually makes sense that Fuck Jerry did it. That's yeah. this weird thing because the center had all this behind-the-scenes footage when they were all high-fiving each other about, yeah, putting they it all together. They filmed this each other thing. so much. And then all of a sudden that just stopped and they basically hired the director of American Movie and Jim and Andy to kind of come in and assemble it and get interviews and, like, follow the narrative all the way through to the end. Bizarre. But, yes, I I thought that documentary was great fun. (laughs) Really good time I know from looking at your Facebook page, (laughs) Sally, you did enjoy it. Um, So, Fire, the greatest party that never happened is currently streaming on Netflix. Uh, You've been listening to Plato's Cave on 3RRR with Cerise Howard, Paul and Anthony Nelson, Emma Westwood and myself, Sally Christie. On tonight's show, we have discussed The Favourite, Vice, Cold War, Let the Sunshine In, Green Book and Fire, The Greatest Party That Never Happened, which are all currently screening or streaming. Uh, You can subscribe to the Plato's Cave podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcasts. Um, A huge thank you to Faith Everard for editing the Plato's Cave podcast and to Carl Chapman for panelling the show. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.